once again, we would encourage you, if you could, for next Sunday, if you were able to park down below, would sure help us provide parking space. And invite your friends to come. Anytime they'll come, it's Christmas or Easter, so try it. Maybe offer to feed them. That'd be drastic, maybe. But uh, go fishing, go fishing, and uh, only God can make their heart open. But uh, let's do that. After the service, Mark uh, is going to be encouraging you that we usually take the week before Easter to hand out personal invitations door hangers. We really don't want you to put a door hanger, ring the bell, and then run. Now, it'd be nice if somebody was there. Uh, I, I don't like, a lot of times I'll leave a door hanger, but the way I'm made, leaving a door hanger doesn't do it for me because I'm not afraid of sinners. Maybe you are. And I, why are we afraid of sinners? Remember, they're the victims, not the enemy. They're the victim, not the enemy. And I want to thank Ron Hughes for flying all the way from Mexico to make this report. And uh, he is a wonderful, marvelous church administrator. We don't thank God enough for him. Thanks for the great job. He says, don't do it, just send money. Um, I want to preach today on why the cross, why the cross. When you talk to people, uh, we talk the cross a lot, the cross, the cross. And it's like, it's really religious shorthand, the cross. Well, does that mean uh, if I wear a cross around on my neck, and especially if Christ is still on it, What's that supposed to signify? It signifies to me somebody got killed. So if, without any uh, interpretation of the shorthand, why the cross? Why the cross? The Romans killed many people upon a cross, which was really a tree. They stole it from the Persians that uh, uh, it was a form of torture that would take approximately, in the norm, three days to die. And usually of a fixation, that the victim didn't bleed to death as much as they could not stand erect anymore to inhale, so they would bend over, and in that process, suffocation would take place, and they would die. So they strung out a torturous death, three to four days. Of course, Christ, the Father arranged it six hours was enough for him. But that wasn't typical. And so let us turn to 1 Corinthians 1 and listen to what Paul is saying as he addresses Corinth, which is about, oh, I think it's around 40, 50 miles south of Athens. And Athens was the intellectual temple of the world at that time, Philo. Socrates, right on, brilliant, brilliant philosophical Greek minds, the center of learning. And he writes to the Corinthians that some seem to be swooning over this intellectualism 
And he says something in verse 18. For the word or the message of the cross is stupidity. Folly is the word moronic. It is moronic. It is stupid. It is silly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. How can the same cross turn off one group as stupid, moronic, and foolish, and the other group says, it's the greatest thing that ever happened? Why? Same information, same cross. Some of you today, this could be nothing but mere rabbit foot religion. We got a little rabbit foot, a little tradition, a little uh, abacadabra, and it's just all make-believe. Paul knows this. He goes on. For it is written, I, God, will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Hmm. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. The wise guy and the guy that thinks he's got everything figured out, God said, I'm going to destroy it. Then he asked, where is the one who is wise? Ask Aristotle. Ask Socrates. Ask all the great Greek philosophers. They say, me. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? They would go on Mars Hill and debate all day who was right. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Ooh, that was hard on the Greeks. you got to be kidding. I'm getting a Ph.D. under Aristotle, and you're saying God says it's foolish? God's saying it's foolish to me. Your Ph.D. in wisdom that denies the cross is a bunch of rubbish. What an insult. So you see, God and human wisdom are at war with each other. He goes on. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. And uh, listen to the word for wisdom. Sophia. Any Sophias here? That means wisdom. Sophistry, philosophy, the love of wisdom. That's, that's his word. The world through philosophy, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What is perceived by the Greek world as stupidity is the message by which God is determined to save. Wow, what a contrast. Watch. For the Jews, how do the Jews, what do they think of the cross? For Jews demand signs. What do you mean signs? Do us a miracle. Even after three and a half years, they said, we won't believe in you unless you do some miracles. He said, I've raised your dead. I've walked on the water. I've fed multitudes. I've healed lepers. I've turned stone I could have into bread. I've done one thing after another. Everything a Messiah, a Messiah is to do, I've done. 
and you still don't believe, and at the end they're saying, one more miracle. And he said, I won't do any more except the sign of Jonah. I'm going to be hid on the earth for three days, and I, as Jonah was spit up by a fish on the shores of the Mediterranean, so in three days death is going to spit me out. It can't hold me. We want more signs. You're not, you haven't done enough to make us think you're Messiah. So we think this cross is stupid because we need somebody to kick the Gentiles out of our promised land to Abraham. And by George, they've got their foot on our neck and we can't, dis- we can't stand the Romans. We're sick of the Gentiles from Nebuchadnezzar on down. Get them out. Don't ask us to believe in some guy walking around that's only got one robe and hasn't done enough to win us. Do you hear? We don't want him. And the cross insults us. It is a shame and a stigma that a man that's going to start a new following can't stay alive and beat the Roman Empire. So they say, more signs. The Greeks said, we want more wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And it's a stumbling block to Jews. They don't want a crucified Messiah. And it's a folly, stupidity to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The most foolish and the most the weakest thing God ever did, he did at the cross. God looked stupid and God looked weak. But at the cross, God showed the wisdom that he would know how to win his enemies. He would know how to satisfy the demands of justice against the sinner and love us at the same time. The cross answered the dilemma of a holy God. How can I get the guilty to heaven? How can the guilty who've been promised death if they sin, how can I keep my word to bring death to them and at the same time give them life? The only way God could resolve it was the cross. Now, when we talk about the cross and the finished work of the cross, you'll hear people talk about, I believe in the finished work of the cross. Duh, what's that? There's four things, four things you've got to know about the cross work of Christ. Four things happen, and this is why we say you must believe the cross. You can only go to heaven by coming through the cross because four transactions took place at the cross, and these four things describe what is known as the finished work of the cross. And what we mean by the finished work is every one of you here without Christ may have religion. you got enough not to be afraid to meet with a bunch of Christians. 
But all through the world, mankind is trying to work its way to heaven. For you see, there's only two ways you can go to heaven. Two ways. The first way I offer to you, all you've got to do is be perfect. Do we have any takers? I see that. No hands. If you're perfect, you don't need Jesus Christ. Don't waste your time with religion. Let me ask you, did anybody mess up last week? Man, there's a bunch of you guilty sinners out there. I sure did. There's some days I don't want to repeat. And I've only been saved 55 years. You ought to have it down by now. Come on. I don't struggle with sin. Are you kidding? Some days I just say, don't get up today. Those are the only days I'm nearly perfect. I never get out of bed. But I'm mad that Carolyn didn't bring me coffee. So I'm already starting bad. There's no perfect people here. All of sin. All of us are sinners. And we all know that, don't we? That's why we feel so comfortable with each other. You know you're a sinner. I know I am. So we'll eliminate the perfect route. No takers. The other is a method for those who are thoroughbred sinners. We've broken God's commandments. We've sinned in word, thought, or deed. We've cussed. We've stolen. We've violated. We've done this. We've done that. All of us guilty as charged. So we all start at the same ground. Guilty as charged, I am a sinner. I fall short of God's expectations. Now, the first thing God requires regarding sin. If you are a sinner, God demands a sacrifice for your sin. Somebody has to die for your sin. Either you or a sacrifice. Either you or a sacrifice. And the indictment of the Bible is, is after 1,500 years with literally thousands of gallons of animal blood, God says the debt is still due. For the blood of bulls and goats cannot satisfy me in my disgust toward your sin. I cannot forgive you on the basis of any sacrifice from Adam all the way up to my son. None of it atones. It only bought you time, but it never eliminated the sin. So, according to Hebrews, Christ says, I have come, as it's written in your word, Psalms, he quotes the Psalms in Hebrews 10, I come to offer myself a sacrifice, but what's different? It was repeated in the Old Testament, I come to do one. In the Old Testament, it only covered over for 360 days, the Jewish year. And then it came due, and a man risked his life to go in and represent by sprinkling blood, and if God doesn't like the animal that was sacrificed, he kills the high priest. Jesus came as God's sacrifice for our sins, for he was much 
in, in answer to the request of Isaac on Mount Moriah, Father, where is the sacrifice? And Abram's comment was, God himself shall provide the sacrifice. Jehovah Jireh. And John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, the sacrifice that will take away the sin of the world. Here he comes, my cousin. I was born six months before Jesus because God ordained me to announce the arrival of Messiah. Christ became our sacrifice so that the key to our message is Christ died in place of us for our sins. He is the only sacrifice that can remove the shame and the pain and the outrage of our sin. Now, the second work of the cross is marvelous. This sacrifice was so pleasing to God, it was able to remove God's anger towards you about the way you've lived. It's a word meaning to be satisfied. You don't even know how to spell it. It's propitiation, so we throw it out. The NIV made it atonement. That which means what, what, it's atonement. You don't even know what the word means. You're Anglos, you're in the West, and you're not Jewish. You don't know what atonement means. Atonement's from a word, kafir, to cover, to cover. That's atonement. Who can cover my sins? Well, animal blood could cover it, but it never could remove it. The debts do. Every 360 days, Christ comes and he said, I will not only take your place, but I will do something to God the Father in which after he sees me in your place, he will never again let you live in threat of his divine anger and judgment. Never again. It will forever be put behind you. For we pass from death to life. We pass from condemnation to being declared righteous. See, sin is personal. You remember David? He goes to bed with a woman that he stole. He sent a note by her husband to get him killed. He's not only a wife stealer, what a low-down, what a low-down sinner David was. God must have put him in the Bible just for sinners like us. To steal a man's wife is low-down. It's rotten. To kill the husband is double-rotten. Don't make David a hero. He's a louse. He's a great sinner. He has no right to heaven. But he wrote a psalm that Paul quotes, Blessed is the man to whom God will not charge his sins. Anybody here have any great sins that you hope will not be charged to you? Blessed is the man to whom God will not charge his sins. And David one day in Psalms 51 is praying. 
Psalm 32, he's weeping. He's broken. He's depressed. His bones are raging. He's suffering psychosomatic illness from sin. If you stay in guilt and sin, you can get ulcers real easy. And they'll give you something for your ulcers, but they can't give you anything for your guilt. They can do nothing for your smitten conscience. I killed a man. I'm sleeping with a woman in my harem that I killed one of my best soldiers to get her. And all I can do with her is have sex. I've got 14 other wives to have sex with. When's enough enough, David? And he wrote one day as he began to repent after a year of a cover-up. And Nathan comes to him. He said, David, God's got your number. Let me tell you a story. There was a man over here that he had one little lamb that he let his children grow up with. And another man with a lot of sheep came, and some people visited him, and he told his servants, go kill that man's one sheep and fix dinner. And David, when he heard the story, he was outraged. He said, the man, he ought to pay fourfold. And Nathan said, David, you're the man. You stole another man's wife with 14 wives in your harem. You're the man. And God took four of his boys and told him this, for one night of sex with a woman that was not your wife, I'm going to kill four of your boys, and I'm going to bring the sword to the house of David, so you're going to be burying your posterity from now on because I'm going to kill them for your sin. And you're still guilty. You're filthy in my sight. And David cried out, before you and you only have I sinned. You were in the bedroom. You were there when I made the plot to kill Uriah. You were there when I wrote the note and sent it to Joab by the man I want to kill. Withdraw the troops and let a stone fall on the head of one of my mighty men. You're the man, David. You're guilty. Before you and you only. And listen to what he said. If you had a sacrifice I could bring, I'd do it. But there's nothing in all the law that can atone for what I've done. His salvation was about 800 years away on a cross outside the street limits of Jerusalem called Calvary. Had Jesus not gone to the cross, David could have never gone to heaven. For there, Jesus picked up the anger and wrath of God toward our sins, and he did something that simply says, he appeased the wrath of God toward our sins, which means you're no longer guilty in God's sight as his child. If you're in Christ, you're free from the guilt. You're free from God's anger. We do not abide beneath his wrath. We ought to be the happiest people in California to know that. You're not under the wrath of God. God's not angry with you. I just had a brother telling me recently, he was reading a book called The Happy Church. That's strange, huh? You don't even think about going to church to smile. That's where it seldom is heard an encouraging word. 
Let's get grim. We're in church. Are you a happy Christian? Don't lie. Are you a happy Christian? Did you know the, uh, the Beatitudes, the word blessed, could be translated happy? Christians ought to be the happiest people in the world to know this. The cross appease the anger of God towards my sin. I think what we do with sin is uh, we sometimes say, well, I broke commandment number 13. I broke, uh, it's like in, in my life, I think I have liberties to go faster than the speed limit says at times. My wife is a legalist. She thinks you ought to be legal. And she tells me every mile that I go over, you're going over the speed. Carolyn, did I ask you? I'm just being truthful. I mean, God knows I'm on urgent business. She is always within the boundaries. Just her whole, no matter what the rules are, she just, she just keeps them automatically. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Well, that's an impersonal law. If I break it, who have I offended? The officer, you know. But I haven't personally injured anybody. The law is there to protect life for sure. But let's say I break a speed limit. I, I go 50 in a 40-mile zone. Oh, big deal. That didn't hurt anybody, right? You're looking too pious. <laughs> As though you never do it. Self-righteous bunch. Um, but, but if I destroyed your property, if I injured one of your children, if I injured your wife, if I slandered your name, now we're, we're making it personal. And I think sometimes we think sin is impersonal to God. I just broke the 13th commandment. No big deal. God just erased it. But no, God says sin against me makes me angry so that I must judge it and deal with it. And he used an, out, uh, an outrageous illustration in the Old Testament to Israel. He used adultery to describe his people when they decided they wanted to have other gods. It was his term for idolatry. And when you read Ezekiel and Jeremiah, you'll read places that you think, hey, this sounds like a soap. This sounds like a, a neighbor being unfaithful. It's God saying, you, my people, you are playing the harlot with the nations. You're my wife. And Ezekiel tells the moving story. I found you in the wilderness. I found you in your afterbirth. You were ready to die. You were squirming in the blood. The placenta was there, and you were dying. 
and I came upon you, and I washed you, and I cleaned you up, and I took you as my own, and I began to bathe you. And as you were growing up and as you came into puberty, I, I got the perfume for you. I bought you your wardrobe. I beautified you with beautiful jewelry. And in my mind, I thought the little girl that I found in the wilderness perishing, when she grows up old enough for love, she'll love me. And instead, she has played the harlot. She'd rather be in the arms of the other gods than to be in the arms of Jehovah. That's how personal God takes our sin. And guess what you're called in the Bible? The espoused, engaged bride of Christ, engaged to Jesus Christ. And he said, stay pure till our wedding night. Stay pure until we are consummated in marriage. Don't sleep with anyone else. You're my bride. We're engaged. And in Jewish language, engagement was equal to marriage. You remember Joseph and Mary? He privately was going to divorce her because they had been betrothed. And he had to get a divorce. And God said, don't get a divorce. She's not been unfaithful. She's with child by the Holy Spirit. God takes your sin so personal that only the death of his son could satisfy his anger. And he could say to you, I'll never let you taste of my wrath ever because I poured it all on my son. Two. Third thing he did. At the cross, he purchased you because God has a picture of us before we know Christ as being slaves of sin under its power, under its ownership. And when Christ came, he said, I come to give my life a ransom for many. And the word ransom simply means I have come as the payment that will release you from the slavery of sin. Sin puts you under its penalty, puts you under its power, and you have to live surrounded with it. He said, I have bought you out from the penalty of sin by dying in your place. I'm going to deliver you from its power. I'll send the Spirit to make that true in your life. And someday I will even deliver you from a sinful environment give you a brand new body, and let you dwell with me forever. I'm going to unleash you from every form of bondage to sin. I will be your redeemer. I will redeem you at the cross. The papers are signed. We're set free. We're no longer slaves to sin. That's what the Bible says. Everything. And so we announced to men and women the finished work of the cross buys your redemption. The finished work of the cross satisfies God's anger and wrath. He now can love you freely because all of his anger has been quenched in his son. He is the sacrifice. And finally, he is the one that while we were yet enemies, 
Christ came and died for us, and he says in Romans 5, for while we were at enmity with God, enmity, that means hostile, enemies of God, Christ came to deliver you from the wrath of God and end the enmity. Now listen to 2 Corinthians 5. We just, we don't have time to unload all of it, but look at just the passage. It's so moving. He tells us believers, we have a ministry of reconciliation. Look at verse 16, 516. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Don't, just as humanity, we see him as a glorified Christ. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, the apostles and believers, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. How was that possible? I will not count their trespasses against them. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. I won't count it against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. It's been done at the cross. Everything God can do to make you his friend has been done by God. Now he says, receive it. Believe it. The only thing that hasn't been done is you to believe it and entrust it. Then he says, for our sake, he made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Listen to me. You have been reconciled to God through the finished work of the cross. God was in Christ reconciling the world, not imputing their sins. Now, follow the court scene. We're in court. I've been guilty of a crime. First of all, one steps up who said, I will pay the fine, Christ. I'll be the sacrifice. Death penalty, the law says you must die. I will die in their place. So God has kept his word. Sin demands death. Why aren't you having to die? Christ took my place. So far, okay? God's been angry with my sin. Christ, death will satisfy God's anger regarding your sin. He can let it all go. For Christ's sake, not yours. Pardon the language, you're still a jerk. You're still a mess up. You haven't done anything to rectify the relationship. You do the sinning, God does the saving. So he's satisfied. I've been bought out of the market. 
And now before the judge, he says, well, my son has paid the fee. He's died in your place. Case dismissed. And you start to leave. There'll be a cab out at the curb like they let him out of prison. Go out. Many times no family there. Just a cabbie. Take him somewhere. Get him away. We're not giving him. We're not helping him anywhere. Go. But in this court, God does something. Oh, oh uh, uh, listen, listen, sir. Through what my son has done on your behalf, you can't leave my court until I tell you I've chosen to adopt you as my own. I'm not dismissing you as a criminal. I'm taking out adoption papers and making you a member of my family. I've removed the enmity, and now I'm going to bring you in my embrace as family. That's the finished work of the cross. My sacrifice, my satisfaction to God for my sins, my Redeemer who bought me out, and the one who's now made me a member of the family, I who was formerly an enemy, I who was formerly alienated, am now a member of a divine family by a royal birth and an adoption. That's why we talk about the cross. This is what the cross means, the finished work of the cross. Can you recite it? Don't look at me. The first thing, this side got it, you didn't. Two, some got propitiation, some got what? Satisfaction. Three, oh, I redeem. <laughs> you got it, good. Now, that's what we celebrate. This Friday, I'm going to look at the eight people charged with the death of Christ as we look Friday at who killed Jesus Christ. And the Bible cites eight people. And we want to look at who killed him, why they killed him, and we'll look at your part in his death. Your part in his death.